Chapter One of Clouds Cover the Campus. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Maria Therese. Clouds Cover the Campus by Daniel A. Lord, S.J. Chapter One. I'll always remember Dick's remark that night because at the time I thought what a whiskey chestnut it was. He stepped on the starter of that funny old car of his and the special rebuilt motor that's as quiet as a sundial and fast as a streamliner on a straight track, and said, Nice night for a murder. I recall that I thought sharply that we university men were really queer guys. Here was a lovely night, with a crescent moon hanging in a silver cutout over the horizon, and the stars doing the rumba against a black velvet drop, and spring pushing out of the ground in fresh greens and yellows and pinks, and the air something you could eat for dessert. Yet a college man summarizes it with a bromide like, Nice night for a murder. Dick's car cut off into the night like a torpedo heading for the nearest battleship, and I strolled across the campus. It was a year since I got my B.S. in physics at Holy Cross, and though my days and nights at Rockledge University centered around Old Short Circuit, that's Dr. Abraham Eisenberg to you, Nobel Prize winner and German-Jewish exile, I still liked the feel of the place. Except that right now it was being cluttered up with young sprouts who talked aviation morning, noon, night, and all the time. Rockledge had been aviation-minded from the moment the government planted aviators there and called on the boys and girls to start flying for their country. It had been up in the stratosphere since Pierre Morin had taken over a month before. Morin, who looked like the whole Lafayette escadrille, who walked like the spirit of France unconquered, who flew a plane like a dive-bomber showing off for the country fair and his best girl, and who came to us with the aura of heroism all around him. Recent heroism, too. When the French army surrendered, he escaped to the USA, and our government put him to work, teaching the young idea how to zoom. I walked slowly under the elms that fringe and frame the main drive, and from instinct looked up toward the windows of old Short Circuit's lab. Yep, the lights were on all right. Instinctively I ducked. The old boy had second sight, and if he spotted me doing nothing, he'd probably yell to me to come up and hold a piece of pipe. Anyhow, it would probably be a piece of pipe I'd worked on, for he'd been making Nils Grumman, he was my fellow-fellow, if you get me, and we turned out the most outlandish pieces of brass and steel. We knew what he was making, a new bomb site. We knew that the parts we were making were parts of the site, but Short Circuit put them together nights when we weren't on the scene. That's the way old Short Circuit trusted the world in general. As I started to turn toward the dorm, I saw a figure moving in the lab, and though I couldn't make out anything clearly, for the window was high, and the figure as I saw it badly foreshortened. I knew in a flash it wasn't Eisenberg. Then the lights in the lab went off, but they stayed off for only a second, came on for a second, went off again, then on, then off for good. What made me do it, I'm sure I don't know, but I turned from the lab and looked up to the sky. There, off to my right, flying low, was a monoplane with colored lights on its wings and landing lights far forward on its nose. As I watched, the lights of the plane blinked off and on and off and on, off for a prolonged minute, 
and then the plane wheeled and was away into the horizon. Maybe you don't think I made the door of the physics building in three jumps and got up the stairs to the third floor in record time. Even as I ran, I wish the AAU had a watch on me. My time considerably bettered the time I made when I won the high hurdles for Holy Cross in my junior year. Down the dark hall I moved with a speed that was safe only because I knew every inch of the way by heart, past my own little experimental lab, dark and tightly locked, and the room where the janitor slept and kept his supplies. As I whisked past the janitor's room, some tautant antenna in my nervous system told me that his door, usually tight shut, was slightly ajar. Maybe I was seeing things. Anyhow, I didn't stop to confirm my impression. For just ahead of me was Old Short Circuit's lab, and my hand, still yards away from it, was reaching out toward the knob. It's queer how when some sudden excitement grips you, every faculty will become tense and photographic. I could picture that familiar lab without seeing it. Old Short Circuit kept a place that looked like the old curiosity shop gone twentieth century, or an alchemist's den with modern improvements. I could see with the sharpness of my imagination the queer apparatus which he had accumulated even in the brief three years since Hitler had booted him out of Germany and his well-beloved university on the Rhine. But imagination this time seemed to bring into sharpest focus the tall steel scaffolding Nils and I had built for him as a testing apparatus for his bomb site. Later the government was to use the same sort of high chair for its young observers. But when old short circuit thought it up, it was something brand new, a high platform on thin steel tubes, supporting seats like those of a pilot and his observer. And between the observer's feet and over the imaginary bomb rack, a place into which the bomb site could be slipped. An experimenter looking down through the bomb site would have all the impressions, relatively cut to scale, of course, of a man flying over a target on the ground. Well, I saw that in my imagination and the work table of the lab littered with everything useful and useless, and old Eisenberg himself puttering away with that inspired idiocy that made him one of the three greatest physicists in the world, a theoretical genius who had the great luck every twenty years to hit on a theory that made the world different from what it had been the day before. Imagination works fast, for I know it was a matter of seconds until I had my hand on the knob. Even then the tenseness of my strung nerves made me pause. In the dark, and when you're nervously tingling, you can't tell what's really happening, and what you think is happening. But I fancied I heard the door of a room behind me, the janitor's, close softly. And I was sure that the queer, hushed movement somewhere off down the corridor was that of retreating footsteps, steps that would be progressing on the tips of gently moving toes. Then I flung open the door of the lab, felt for the light, flashed it on, saw what I saw, and in quick self-preservation, flashed the light off again. For the bomb site scaffold had been flung to the floor with a crash that had bent even the tubing. It needed only a second glance to tell me that the bomb site was still in place. And lying against it, face downward, was the twisted body of old Short Circuit, dead as a sardine, but with his arms wrapped around the supports of his precious bomb site. To make a lot of things clear that have to be clear, or you won't be able to follow me, Let's put this whole account into reverse. I hate storytellers who start their stories and then double back to pick up threads they dropped along the way. You know the kind. Oh, just a minute. 
I should have said that when the Lady Gwendoline first met the butler, she at once recognized him as her long-lost brother. But either I hand you a few scraps of data, or the whole tragic incident, and the incidents that followed are going to be pretty misty, so... A queer lot of people assemble in the graduate department of a big university like Rockledge. I got my fellowship on a recommendation from good Father Kelly at the Cross. When for the first time I told Old Short Circuit that I was a Catholic pacifist, he snorted a couple of times and demanded in his thick, guttural speech, I thought Catholics were all crusaders, warlike. You never could tell whether or not the old bird was hitting at you. As you know, we fellows of Holy Cross are called crusaders, so he may have been wisecracking, but Old Short Circuit was the kind that always lets you speak your piece, and I spoke mine rapidly and in as brief a summary as I could. I told him that I thought the Lord never meant men to kill each other, that I wanted to spend my life doing highly constructive things for the betterment of the race, so that I'd not have time to smash mankind to bits, and that I was persuaded if Christians, all of them, lived Christ-like lives, their example would be so powerful that men would follow it and lay aside their arms forever. I'm afraid I said it all badly, and even as I did, I wondered what this exiled German Jew, kicked out of a country that hadn't fully disavowed its claims to be Christian, thought of my theorizing. To my amazement, he pulled his ear savagely, scratched his never-quite-clean fingernails, resonantly a long three days' growth of whiskers, and said, A little more, and you persuade me to be a Christian. We both knew he was quoting by ear, but we grinned at each other and let it go at that. Besides, as I knew, there was Julia May. At any rate, when aviation hit the campus with a bang, I stuck to my physics, especially my own little speciality, light, high-tension steel, as the basis of cheap, pleasant houses for poorer families, and let the rest of the boys go air-minded. And my best friends on the campus, Dick Kennerly and Harry Thorne, took to the air like young swallows. Oh, so you noticed it, did you? Yes, the three of us were Tom, Dick, and Harry. Pure coincidence, but almost as funny as if we turned out to be Winkin, Blinkin, and Nod. But let's go back to the afternoon of the evening I've already described. Nils Grumman and I met outside Hadley Hall, the dorm in which we both lived, at a little before two o'clock. Short Circuit had called us for two o'clock, and though, once you were there, he hadn't the faintest idea of time, you arrived on the exact dot, or he threw anything from an insult to a cast-iron retort at your unlucky head. Nils was a young Scandinavian. I never can tell him apart. The Swedes, Norwegians, and Danes, I mean. He had his high school work in the old country, and his university physics at state, and he came to Eisenberg at exactly the same time that I did. I liked him. He was big and blonde and quiet, and had a skill with his hands that made an experiment jump through hoops roll over, and sit up and beg. "'Heck of an afternoon for puttering around the lab,' said Nils, who had a Scandinavian's love of the outdoors. We swung and stepped toward the lab. If old Short Circuit wouldn't throw a fit at my taking the time, I think I'd go out for flying with the rest of them. I thought of another young Scandinavian who started to fly years ago, and hadn't done so badly, on his way from America to Europe.' Outside the journalism building, we ran smack into Sidney Wise. I guess there's one on every campus, smart, smooth, a tongue like the lash on the end of a bullwhip, and a pen that ran vitriol. 
but brilliant wasn't word enough for him. We agreed over our hamburgers in the campus cozy corner, and ain't that a name for a place for men to eat? That he turned out to be either another Philip Gudala or a manuscript writer for some second-rate publishing house. Weiss greeted us out of the side of his mouth. He never seemed to think anyone on the campus worth a full mouth conversation. Hiya, lads. Going over to the field to see the flower of the flock become the eagles of tomorrow and the bulwark against totalitarianism? When Weiss deliberately mixed a figure, he turned out hash. We shook our collective heads. You really should, my lads, he continued. Remember, the enemy is practically at our gates, not less than three thousand miles away. Unless we arm to the teeth, skipping, of course, the wisdom teeth, Hitler's tanks will put on their rubbers and come walking right through Rockledge's hallowed walls. And as for Stalin, oh, tisk, oh, tisk. Anyone can see that after he annexes the Balkans, his next step will be Oklahoma and Keokuk. Nils glared at him. It's guys like you, he growled, that make guys like me want to put on a uniform and start shooting. Wise grinned, pleased that he had roused an adversary, and then he went cynically serious. You're doing your part already, but the little bird that whispered to me was not named Walter Winchell. Aren't you deep in old Short Circuit's bomb site? And won't that be a ducky little addition to the cause of peace? An aviator can pick out the baby lying in its cradle, bomb it at ten thousand feet, and spare the pretty nurse, if she happens to be pretty enough. And any flyer can hit the exact center of a red cross with his eyes half shut. I thought for a minute that Nils was going to paste him. What is it that gives fellows with glasses the idea that they can insult big, shouldery chaps all over the lot, and get nothing more than dirty looks? I caught Nils by the arm, and we walked off together. Nils reacted a little like a warm bottle of soda that has been rudely shaken. Don't let the pinko get you down, Nils. But what puzzles me is how the blighter came to know anything about the bomb site. You and Short Circuit and I, and probably the authorities of the university, we're all that knows about it. Who's the little bird that whispered? Well, shut up about it and don't let Eisenberg know. He'd blow a fuse. The corridor of the physics building seemed delightfully cool, cloisterally quiet and studious. As we swung down the third-floor hallway, I know our steps quickened, as they always did when we approached the magnetic field of old Short Circuit. The janitor was sweeping the floor. He had a name, I believe, but I had never heard it. For with the thoughtless cruelty of youth, the student body of Rockledge, having gone to see Lawton in The Hunchback of Notre Dame, had christened the janitor Charlie. Well, to be candid, while he wasn't by a long shot Charles Lawton as Quasimodo, he wasn't too pale in imitation. The years had increased the roundness of his humped shoulders. He dragged one foot as he walked, and he kept his face hidden by a battered felt hat, which might well have been his bulwark against the rude stares of mankind. Let's say, in a phrase, that he was no beauty. That's the mildest way we can express it. I had a feeling he liked me. On occasion he would take me into his little room and show me books on physics that astounded me. The old fellow either read things that were far over his head, or we had underestimated the intelligence of the man who swept the floors of Rockledge. He looked up at us from under his hat. The dean and Mr. Morin are with the doctor, he said. For a second we hesitated. Even graduate students didn't go barging in on deans and government directors of aviation. 
On the other hand, they did barge in if old Short Circuit expected them there at a certain hour. So he knocked on the door, and then without waiting for an answer, under no circumstances did an answer ever come anyhow, we walked in. The dean was talking, in fact, finishing up a sentence. I never liked the dean. Oily seems to say it. You felt that his every sentence tried to pat you on the shoulder, if it didn't in the process slap your face. But he had a long list of degrees, mostly from European universities, and when the scientific societies met, everybody opened a path, spread palms, and bowered low to Dean Rothen. Now, in contrast to the tall, handsome, magnificently groomed Morin, I liked him less than ever. But he was speaking. But when the bombsite is ready, you'll let me know, Eisenberg. After all, the university deserves a bit of your glory, and I should like a glint of the reflection for myself. He laughed, oozing oil. The dean bowed to Nils and me and walked out of the room. Morin hesitated a second, and then in perfect English, with no slightest trace of French accent, he said smiling to Eisenberg, I think I understand you perfectly, doctor. You'd be a fool to show your invention to anyone except the country's president or the secretary of war. Stick to your position. I'm all for you. And he was gone, closing the door gently behind him. A gentleman and a soldier. No wonder the young aviators on the campus were enthusiastic about him. Eisenberg made a gesture that seemed to clear the room of the two intruders, and climbed up the ladder that stood beside the scaffold of the bomb site. For the first time I noticed that the site was actually in place, though it was covered with a cloth. He wormed himself down into the seat that would in a plane be occupied by either the observer or the gunner. He looked down at us for a moment quizzically, and then to Nils' clear annoyance and my slight amusement, kept the site covered so that he could use it without our seeing the full details. "'Where's Julia May?' he suddenly demanded, and my own heart missed a beat. Julia May was the doctor's niece, and I had high hopes that some day I would stand beside her at the altar. For Julia May, the daughter of Short Circuit's brother, who had married a Bavarian Catholic, which explained Julia May's blonde hair and stalwart faith, was of consuming interest to me. As if in answer to the sharp question, the lab door again opened, and in came Julia May. I wanted to hurry over and take her hand, but a quick look told me that she was there in her not infrequent post as secretary to take down the unintelligible jargon that old Short Circuit tossed at her as he worked. She nodded her blonde head at Nils and at me, and sat down at the crowded table, pencil and paper ready. When old Short Circuit went to work, believe me, everybody about the place moved fast, and today he was working at almost hysterical speed. No explanations were needed to tell us that he was testing the site, testing it in miniature, but with that exact precision that marked all his experiments. Nils and I were simply hopping at his commands. Into the miniature bomb rack we put the small lead pellets that represented the loads of death. Old Short Circuit barked his orders. Draw a cross on a sheet of white paper. Get the paper from her. Julia May was simply her around the laboratory. The pronoun, along with this piece of steel and that spring. No, not a thick cross, just two penciled lines and thin. I obeyed orders with all possible alacrity. Now lay the paper under me on the floor, any place between the support's four legs. 
I obeyed, placing the paper a little off to the side and behind him. Then Nils and I stood back while the doctor shot at Julia May a succession of short words, each of them alone making sense, none of them having the slightest meaning in the context that was his own invention. And just as we were expecting him to begin his test, he stopped, looked down at us, and laughed sharply. That dean, that shyster of the scientific world, I make no effort to reproduce his heavy accent. The human voice can produce what written language struggles in vain to capture. And that tall Frenchman with his fine manners. I am an exiled German, but I am a German still. I love America for what it has done for me and mine, but not France, and not the Dean. He shook his head violently, and not England either. When I deliver this bomb site, it will be to the government that saved me from death and starvation, to your president, or to the man, whatever his name that runs your army and your navy. To no one else. No, not to no one. And then again, in one of those lightning changes, he barked. On your knees, watch the target, move it to a new place after each shot, and a report. Nils and I were on our knees, I with my fingers gripping the far corner of the square of white paper, for I knew that he would want speed. The first pellet fell, hitting the pencil cross at exactly the point where the lines touched. I moved the square of paper, first slowly, and then, on his harsh urging from above, faster and faster, and, from the place where ultimately would be a bomb rack, dropped a rain of lead pellets that rolled about me on the floor, but not before each of them, with almost terrifying precision, had hit the pencil lines at the exact point of their crossing. I needed no explanation to make clear what was happening. The bomb site, lifted by a plane high into the air, would be accurate enough to hit a spot relatively as minute as the infinitesimal point where two penciled lines form the juncture of a cross. In a flash the words of Wise came back into my mind. Why had he mentioned hitting a red cross, just as if he had known that that very afternoon we would be training our imaginary bombs on the center of a penciled cross? The rain of pellets had stopped. I heard Nils pull in his breath in a gasp of appreciation. For myself, I sat back on my heels, feeling pretty sick. War wasn't terrible enough, I thought, without this new device that gave a destroyer of houses and villages the power to pick out a, yes, a baby lying in his cradle. Help me out, ordered old Short Circuit, and the two of us held the ladder while he rheumatically climbed down. From the floor level he faced us, not asking a question, but telling us a triumphant result. The pellets, they hit the exact center of the cross every time. Nine? We nodded, Nils in reverence, I, I'm afraid, in a feeling of momentary revulsion. Julia May joined us, her hands on my arm. She sensed how I was feeling. She always did. We had talked much, we too, of war and its horrors. You got what I dictated? he demanded of her. Every word, uncle, she answered, folding the paper and slipping it into an envelope. Good, he replied, and then walked over to the table. Gentlemen, he said, facing us, leaning against the table, I wish to thank you. The factors of luck and accident are now gone out of airplane bombing. Henceforth, when a bomb falls, it hits precisely the point at which it is aimed, be that a single gun the funnel of a battleship, the top of a radio antenna, the center of an ammunition dump. I exploded. 
or an old lady crouching behind a tree, or a wounded soldier in his bed, or a baby in its mother's arms, or a girl kissing her soldier lover goodbye. There was tense, painful silence. I felt Julia May's hand tighten on my arm, and then release its grip. Old Short Circuit looked at me thoughtfully. So, he said, softly to himself, so, and then, sit down, light your pipes, I want to talk. And we sat. It wasn't often that old Short Circuit deigned to explain himself, but now I felt that he was trying, and doing a pretty good job considering his struggles with the language that he used only to make the necessary orders for an experiment. You are wrong. That hell on earth is what I am trying to stop. Once on a time when men dropped a bomb, what would it hit? Who knew? Maybe a soldier, maybe a nursing sister, maybe a battleship, maybe a baby carriage. With this, no, only the soldier, only the ship. Oh, I know it is horrible that it must be the soldier, the ship. But as long as men fight, so long must we who do not want to fight resist them. Not crudely, clumsily with sticks, with pitchforks, but brilliantly, effectively, with science, with unwavering skill. And when I remember how they treated me and mine, these men in their heavy boots and colored shirts, when I think of how, from another direction, they come wearing the color of blood, I am glad if I give to the land that saved me and mine a weapon to hold back from you and yours. He swung his eyes straight at me. The things that would kill and ruin and enslave you forever. He might have talked further, but the phone rang. He answered it himself, leaving us sitting silently in a little huddle. From his tone we all knew that he was talking with his wife. It was the patient, affectionate, yet slightly frightened voice he always used in talking with her. None of us knew the story of how he came to marry this relatively young woman. Julia May didn't want to talk about it, for she and her aunt found it difficult enough to live in the same house. There was a legend that he had married the young woman because she had been engaged to one of his relatives who died, and that only by his marrying her could she get out of Germany. We tried not to listen to his tired, patient voice, for we knew that it reflected the unhappiness of the marriage, and the patent selfishness of this young and beautiful Mitzi. Nils left us when we were outside the physics building. The doctor had remained on in the laboratory. Julia May and I walked slowly down the road, and when Dick pulled up behind us in his famous car, we accepted his offer of a lift. Let's go out to the field and see how the flyers look today, he suggested. It was a place to go, so we agreed. What had once been a secondary playing field, the university had handed over to the government for the training of the young aviators. A temporary hangar opened its yawning mouth onto the new concrete runway. There were planes of various makes and ages standing about, with that peculiar lifelessness that characterizes a plane at rest. In and out of the field moved the government's mechanics, the instructors, and the young student flyers. Only it took no clairvoyance to know that over the field hung a horrible pall. Harry, his goggles swinging from his hand, dashed up to the car as he pulled in. We saw fear and tragedy in his face. Young Cass, he said in quick gasp, you remember him, the red-headed kid that was such a whiz from the day he started? Well, he cracked up. Nobody quite knows how. But what difference does that make? Harry's face twitched in quick grief. He's as dead now as he'll be after a dozen inquests and investigations. And me, 
I don't know whether I've got the guts to go on with it. That makes three in the past week and a half. Three gone to God. He broke his goggles in the intensity of his emotion. We sat wordless. The two preceding deaths had shaken the campus to its depth. This new death was just so much unnecessary horror added to the situation. I felt my nerves stretching again. Sidney Weiss walked by. With him was a young mechanic, brown from the sun, but browner naturally and clearly not an American. Weiss grinned at us. Another eagle's wings clipped, he said with his callous cruelty. Rodriguez here says Cass is entirely to blame. The mechanic shrugged his shoulders in a Latin gesture. Stalled his machine in midair, he said. No excuse for it, no reason. I don't know, but do American college boys make good aviators? I doubt it. In my saner moments, I should have resented the use of force, but at that particular moment, I was glad when Harry wheeled, struck swiftly, and looked down at the form of the mechanic stretched out on the ground at his feet. End of chapter 1